Hello, I'm Ariel Kroon. And I'm Christina De La Rocha. Welcome to Season 3 of Solarpunk Presence. The podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a future we'd like to live in. Because if solarpunk as a genre of fiction dreams about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, solarpunk as a movement rolls up its sleeves and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. Back in April, I sat down and talked to Sinti Lee, a professor of geology from Rice University in Texas. Sinti studies um, the evolution of the Earth through time from a geological and geochemical perspective, and he has an amazing soft spot for birds. So we talked about bird watching. It turns out it's kind of a gateway to environmental activism. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. But before we continue, Ariel would like to break in to say, We're a two-person operation, and we need your support to keep making solarpunk content. If you like what we do, please consider supporting the podcast over at our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash solarpunkpresence. There are a few different tiers for subscribers who get early access to episodes as well as bonus content written by myself and Christina. Consider rating and reviewing us as well and sharing this episode with your friends and people who might be interested in the podcast. Thank you for supporting the Solarpunk community. Now... On to the episode. Hi, Cindy. Hey, Christina. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. So, and you're a professor of earth sciences. Uh, yeah, so I met Rice and I, um, I do research on geology and I teach geology. Uh, and I love, I love mostly uh, what I do. I love teaching and uh, I really do like the geology, but I also have this side passion that's kind of consumed a lot of my life. It's it's about birds, and I've been doing that since I've been a kid. I almost went into that profession, but I think everyone told me I couldn't make a living off of birds, so I went to become a geologist, and that wasn't that much different. Rocks don't yeah. sing, though. Rocks don't sing, and uh, but you know, for me, I like going out to the fields. We collect rocks. In, in my profession, I. I try to tell the story of the earth through rocks, you know, the record that rocks hold. And so that gets me out in the field to collect rocks, to observe how the rocks are laid down, their structures, uh, and then reconstruct the story. But while you're out there in the field, you know, you can't help but look at everything else uh, besides just the rocks. So there's, there's the plants, there's the birds, the insects, and Birds, of course, so photogenic and, and really easy to to kind of fall in love with them. So I guess that's why I, I, I kind of like birds. It just happened naturally. In fact, a lot of geologists are bird watchers, and so I'm sort of no different uh, ah, in that. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. I haven't gone out in the field very often, so. Um, oh, okay. I was going to say, I actually did once meet a professional bird watcher. Oh, really? Um, okay. Once, yeah, where I used to live, um, uh, just a couple of miles away from here. So I live in the state of Schleswig-Holstein, which is the northernmost state of Germany. And we have the state's only, I think it's called a northern dipper. Does that sound about right? Actually, it's the white-throated dipper, also known as the European dipper, 
or just the dipper? Yeah, I don't know Germany very well, but yeah, there's dippers up there, special yeah. birds. Well, there's one, and she was female, and she lived in a little stream by this house I used to live in. There was, there was a uh, next to the suburbia. There was this little ravine that was a little bit wild. Uh-huh. It had a river running through it. This bird watcher spent all winter there with a telescope and a camera, um, protecting this bird. Oh, really? Wow. And he was a he was a very strange fellow, actually. <laughs> you did not want to mess with him. But but yeah, I don't know what he did during the summer, but during the winter, he was this protector of of our of of this bird. Yeah, uh, some of us uh, definitely are. Uh, Pretty protective of our birds. I, I guess I have to admit I'm a little bit like that as well. Not not so much as they'll sit and guard the bird, but protect the habitats and really try to take care of the you know, the environment there. And when I see it being uh, threatened or damaged, I I kind of want to take action to to fix it or to protect it for sure. Oh, so, that's fantastic! Yeah, that's important, isn't it? And you're under yeah. you're under a major flyway, aren't you? Where you are? Yeah. So um, you know, so I'm at Rice University, which is in Houston, Texas, and it's uh, yeah one of the major flyways for birds. And I think part of it is because it's um, I guess the Mississippi River isn't too far from us, and so some birds will go up the Mississippi River, and then uh, a lot of birds will cross the Gulf of Mexico in the spring from Yucatan and take those uh, tailwinds right about now, actually, and head out north. And it, those tailwinds kind of take you right up through the Louisiana-Texas border. And that's where we are. So they come up this way. And so, you know, actually one of my missions at Rice is we have a little spot. It's called Harris Gully. You know, to the untrained eye, if you walked by it, you might think it's just like a vacant lot. But to students of sort of nature, uh, you walk in and it's it's like paradise. There, there are all these different plants there. There are trees and grasses and flowers. And if you look a little more closely, you find all these insects, 800 species of insects. And, and then you have the birds. Um, and today we had... Uh, 81 species of birds uh, we, we detected, which is truly remarkable. And all of this is all, we're surrounded by buildings on all sides. It's Houston, fourth largest city in the U.S. And these little green spots are uh, stopovers, rest stops, I guess, uh, for birds on their long journey of migration from the equatorial regions all the way to the Arctic or uh or the, at least the boreal area and so as we as as uh population expands or even without population expansion we get the development and knocking out all the native habitat that used to be here you know these birds have been going up up and down for hundreds of thousands if not millions of years and then all of a sudden this short time humans come in and we destroy everything and uh, so now these little green spots mean more and more, are more important than ever before. And so I, I've been trying to make that those spots as good as they can be. And with that, you know, it become it's about uh, ecological health, and making sure you have enough biodiversity, enough complexity within the ecosystem structure, so that 
you have all these different niches that the birds have to, or microhabitats the birds need. So, yeah, so that's what I like to do. Even though I'm a geologist, this is sort of my mission and uh, on the side. And it's a, uh, for me, it's a little bit of an escape from the general work uh, that I do. And, and then it's also, I found it to be such a special way to get people to know more about the earth, more about science, more about nature when maybe they didn't have that background. But it's so easy to get into birds. Uh, you can enjoy it. They're pretty. You get trapped into it. And before you know it, you're uh, you're doing a little science here and there, contributing to science, even though you know most of the folks doing this are not scientists by, by training. There could be anybody out there. And uh, the diversity of people we've got involved in this is just amazing. All types of demographics. I'm so happy about that, and I've, I've met so many people and and so forth. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. Yeah, you you lead um, tours and trips on on the side. So yeah, I I, I do lead some uh, trips. It's all f- mainly for uh, charity or or uh, fundraising. I, I don't get any. Uh, pay for that i don't want to take any pay for those sorts of things so you know those that and those that uh we do take fees those fees go straight to supporting here in what, uh, there's this place called the nature discovery center which its mission is about educating youth uh, the kids in nature and so we put all the money goes into their you know summer camps and and programs or after school programs so uh, birding is actually hard work if you get really into it. I mean, you have a lot to study and learn and because you know all these birds off the top of your head. You know the subtle differences in the shading or the coloration or whatever the terms yeah. are. You know what they sound like. And it it's really takes a lifetime to master this. I mean, well, there should be like black belts and birding and stuff like that. Well, <laughs> There are um, certainly, you know, I've been doing it for a lifetime, and and uh, and, and certainly, you have people who can be very, very experienced. And uh, but to get into it is not that difficult, especially now with so many apps that uh, the entry level is is uh, decreasing. And I think that's a great thing because just anyone can get in, and I. And once you get in, uh, although it sounds, you know, when new people start, they think, how is it that you know all these calls? How can you remember all these birds? And, yeah, I've been doing it for a while, but I've mentored so many people, and I've seen them where they come in, and then within a year, within two years, they're they're pretty darn good. Um, And it's not so much that, you know, you have to know every bird. It's about really enjoying it out there and um when when you start looking at birds you start to see your surroundings and hear your surroundings a little more become more observant and it takes you to places that you otherwise wouldn't go and so uh, it it changes a lot of people's lives and uh, gosh this sunday i'm going to go i'm going to go to church i'm not a religious person but i'm a spiritual person and and it's an Episcopalian church where uh, right after the service, I'm going to uh, give a little, um, I don't know, a discussion or a presentation on uh, birds or environmental awareness. And 
and sort of healing and spirituality. Uh, I think it should be accessible to all, and you don't have to become an expert. You just have to be able to enjoy, and that's easy, and it's great. I, yeah. So I, you know, I've I've uh, seen the psychological effects of birds or just nature in general on people and how it helps you recover from trauma or some hardships or, and it's just amazing. So it's not mainly about going out there and checking a bird off your list, but it's about, it's about going out, spending time listening to the wind blow and, and watching the birds and watching just really watching them and how they behave and what they're like and what they do. And, and is that right? I, I think so. I mean, there are all different types and levels of people interested in birds. And certainly there there is a part of me that, particularly when I was younger, I suppose, that very competitive edge where you're out to get out as, as many birds as you can. As you, you know, you'd run these uh, big days where in 24 hours, you try to see as many birds as you can and you, you want to beat the, the, the last record as, as far as you can. And, and, uh, in fact, we still try to do that, uh, every once in a while, but I, I've toned down on, on that and really take it more slowly now and just go out and use it as a way to connect with nature. And, you know, these birds, are tuned to the rhythms of our planet. Our planet's rhythms, its climactic rhythms are, as you know, uh, obviously more than I do. Uh, uh, but, uh, but for the listeners, I guess the, uh, the, the orbital dynamics and the controlling of the seasons, or, you know, and um, the, the tilt to the earth, all of that. And then the seasons control where the, how much sun gets to the poles and, um, and how much sun controls the amounts of energy and the amount of food and, and just this complete cascade all the way to the birds and the birds follow that. And so when you watch the birds and you see, well, when the swallows come back or when the Orioles come back, it's, it's telling you it's, it's following the rhythms of the planet, but it's a visible thing. You know, you know a lot of things in geology, when I talk to someone who's not a geologist, it seems somewhat abstract and uh, they think I'm talking about real technical stuff. But if I talk to them about birds, then it's a lot, I think, easier to to uh, communicate with everyone. Nobody doesn't, almost nobody doesn't like birds. So <laughs> maybe you don't, maybe there's some people that don't like the geese at the parks that, that chase oh, they them. Are they messy. Oh, they are messy. Oh, they are messy. Yeah, right. I, got a, I got attacked by a duck once on a geology field trip. Like the only biologist on the geology field trip gets attacked by the duck. It was very embarrassing. You know, and you're also like it hurts, but you can't kick them because you would kill them. <laughs> if you, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know? you, you can't, you can't kick them, and it would also look bad if you kick them. So you just have to take it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, oh, our swallows came back three days ago. We're very, we're very happy about that. It's a bit late this year because it's, it's still a bit too cold here and gray, well, and see, there's not there, many there insects. You go. They come back uh, usually on on schedule. You know, it could be plus or minus a week or so, but. They're loyal to that. They come back to the same place. It's a mysterious yeah. thing that they do. And and uh, and then you 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 know, like today we saw this mass migration of birds at, just on our campus. And I made the comment to one of my uh, one of the colleagues that was out there looking at birds that you know this has been going on for millions of years. And statistically, a human life you've got about seventy of these to witness. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. less because as you get older, you can't see it here. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, no, that was amazing. Of how finite our time is on uh, on this planet, how how small we are. Yeah, and birds are birds are totally different than mammals. So I have I have chickens, and they definitely they live in the moment, right? They're never like, oh, the weather's so horrible, we're just gonna wait for tomorrow, you know? No, <laughs> they're just always out there, and they just don't seem to think, oh God, why can't it stop raining? You know, they're just there doing their thing. They're, the birds will, they, they do their thing. They they come out. I mean, they do hide a little bit in the rain. Um, I was just, one of my students was trying to ride, do a ride from uh, Houston to Austin, which I think is like 200 miles or so. Okay, on a bicycle. Line. Okay. Yeah, on a bicycle. And so, of course, he was telling me they have to pick the right day so that mm-hmm. they don't have to ride in the headwind mm-hmm. they ride with the tailwind and and uh so he was watching all the weather and i was laughing because i watched that weather like a hawk at this time because the birds <laughs> follow that the birds don't want to fly in the headwind okay either so they uh, say so you think just like the birds so <laughs> well you know birds are not stupid so i had um uh one spring there was a sudden cold snap and uh, there was uh, some European blackbirds who must have abandoned their nest. And they threw out a freshly hatched chick. And I found oh. it. I must have found it within about an hour. I mean, because uh-huh. it was freezing. It was freezing uh-huh. out. And we, we brought it inside and we put it on the heater. And an hour later, it was, it was, it was moving again. Um, so we're like, okay, we got we to gotta take care of this thing. Um, and so we, we went out and bought heat lamps and made a little nest. and. And got some uh, war- mealworms, and I boiled lots of eggs and fed it cat food and stuff like that. And just had this thing in my house for like three weeks. And it's amazing. Once it gets to the point where it's hopping, so you get it out of the nest and it starts hopping on the floor. And it teaches itself everything. Oh, right? yeah. It's like totally, pr- It's I don't know if it's form and function or if it's just kind of somehow programmed. But, it, you, you know, you you get it on the floor and it has to hop uh, to, and then it's like, whoa, whoa, I'm standing. And then it, it hops to kind of catch its balance. And then it realizes, oh, I can hop. And then it practices. It just hops and hops and hops and hops and hops. And then it starts using its wings to help itself balance. And then it realizes, wait, hey, wait, I've got something here. <laughs> I can uh-huh. like lift myself up a little bit. And then it practices hopping with its wings and then it practices flying. And then, I mean, it's just amazing. And then at some point you have to put it outside because it's just smashing into the windows. Also, they poop everywhere. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Um, That carpet, I've shampooed it like three or four times. It has never recovered from the bird. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But then you put it outside and then you're like, okay, I got to teach this thing to eat. And what happens is you're like, oh, all the insects are going to be under the rocks. So you turn over the rock and then the bird's like, and then you convince the bird like you got to put this in your mouth and it it catches on pretty fast but then what it realizes is that your job is to turn over rocks oh wow right so it's like in the end this little three week or four week old bird teaches you that when you come out your job is to turn the rock over so it can (laughs) eat all the insects underneath i mean it's just amazing anyways and then after i think i had it for uh i don't remember how long it was outside a week or two 
And then it just it left me <laughs> and I'll never see it again. It was a great bird. Unfortunately, it's probably imprinted on people now. I, I but well, it's probably dead by now because it's been they in the wild they only live three to five years. So yeah, I'll never know though. That's the yeah, weird you thing. Know, you never know. We had a um you know how owls uh when they eat they don't they don't chew or birds mm-hmm. don't chew, they just swallow, but they uh, they regurgitate all the undigestible stuff, the the hair and the the bones, and they shoot it out to their mouth as a pellet. Yeah, my my eat. neighbor is an artist, and she collects those. Oh, really? She's got a whole collection of these well, these. What what does she do with them? Yeah, I, I don't know. She just keeps them. Oh, okay. Occasionally well, shows certainly... them to people. I mean, they're interesting. Yeah, it's kind they're of really fascinating. Yeah, we so my kid will go out and pick these up and then we found oh he found um when he opened one up a tibia with a bird band on it so oh. it, this this owl great horned owl big giant owl had eaten a bird and we just had the tibia so i couldn't tell what it was but the band you can then take those codes and report it to the usgs and they'll come back and give you a certificate and tell you all about that bird and it turned out Hang on, the USGS, the the U.S. Geologic Survey, keep track of birds. Yes, well, so the used to be, I think, um, uh, in in parallel with the USGS, there was something like the National Biological Survey uh, in the U.S. And then, I don't know when, maybe about 20 years ago, they they merged. So a good chunk of the USGS is all about biology or ecology, just keeping track of our biodiversity. Oh, that's and, amazing! Uh, yeah, so they um, they managed a lot of the banding uh, database, and then a lot of the banding goes on, I think, to study uh, West Nile virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, anyway, this bird was a blue jay, mm-hmm. and it had been banded for that purpose in Houston, about a mile ago, away from where we found this, and it was seventeen years old. Wow! Wow, that's impressive. And that's in the wild. In urban Houston, and you know, we have hawks, we have cars, you can crash into buildings. It lasted 17 years only to be eaten, uh, alive by a, an owl. Well, oh, but this is this okay, this is nature, right? When you it's think nature, about it, so yeah. I, I, we have all these, we have all these birdhouses, um, that get filled by, um, house sparrows, and you know, it's really. Every every nesting box gets filled by a sparrow. It's crazy, but you and you see them. They they um they've already hatched the first set of chicks for this year, and they'll keep going until August. So they'll have mm. they'll have at least three clutches, and each one of those will have at least three chicks in it. And then you think about I don't know I don't know how long a, a typical house sparrow lives, but presumably two or three years. So when you add that up, you're like, okay, then in principle, then they could have um what is that then? Um, maybe nine or you know sixteen or whatever offspring. Yeah, they can make it. They can make a lot. They can. The population and, can grow. Oh, Christina, that's nine per year. If they have three eggs per clutch, say, and have three clutches per year, so if they live to be about three years on average, something like that, then that's twenty-seven birds that they produce, not nine. 
I should also say, I'm not quoting any statistics here, any real actual measured statistics, and kind of the average number of sparrow eggs per clutch and clutches per year really varies a lot as you move from the tropics to higher latitudes. So take these numbers with a grain of salt. As an example only of, yeah, not survival of the fittest, well, but that, but also that most things are born to die to feed something else. And all they have to do is have two of those chicks survive to adulthood and start, you know, and then raise their own families. Yeah. If you're maintaining yeah. a steady population. That's right. Yeah. Everybody else has to get eaten as a baby. Right? So so most of life is really just producing offspring to feed into the food web. And this is this is the truth of natural selection, right? You know, yeah, everyone's yeah, yeah. that's right, yeah. It's most you know. Almost everything has to die young. That's right. Yeah. And that's think, okay. And that's, and that's amazing. That is just, it's so incomprehensible. It is so if, like as a, as a civilized person, it just feels so brutal and so wrong. And, and just, yeah. I mean, can you that, imagine that if, can you imagine nature. that? Yeah. But, but uh, I guess humans, we, at least today we, we have somehow, violated that uh, we we live much longer i mean I, if i look at myself my my eyesight is so bad i probably a thousand years ago probably wouldn't have made it beyond like 30 years something like that <laughs> yeah who knows i was anything right? i was born a month early i might not have made it to to one oh, yeah? yeah to one month yeah. or whatever i mean who knows i i, I was really small but other than that, I was all right. But still, you know, it's crazy. Most of us, yeah, you know, like 80% of us would yeah. have died very young. Pro- probably, or, or or taken out by some disease. Uh, yeah, yeah, so we, yeah. We've kind of gone beyond that uh, or violated natural selection. <laughs> well, we've appropriated so much of the earth in order to do that. And, you know, we've course, taken all this yes. energy out of the ground. Um, yeah, all yeah. stolen all this yeah. photosynthesis from the past, essentially. Yep. And yeah, I like and how yeah. you say that stolen the photosynthesis of the past. Yeah, yeah, but that's what it is, right? So it all is, this energy yeah. that was was captured by plants um, yeah. from the sun, and yeah, it was just hiding in the ground. So it's just amazing. I mean, so when you 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 know, so sometimes I think about what if you know science fiction thing here if if we had a, a big apocalypse or whatever and civilization crashed and people had to start over from not from scratch but pretty close to it you how would society evolve if you don't have this storehouse of fossil fuels because we use so much of it up you'd have this completely different trajectory of the reestablishment of civilization you know especially if you've forgotten how to do everything and couldn't make solar panels or whatever yeah sure if you if we really forgot i think I think it'd be pretty tough. <laughs> well, but you couldn't follow the same. You definitely couldn't follow the same path because you don't. You you don't have the fossil fuel so much anymore, right? Okay, you have some left, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you you would not all the easy stuff. The easy oil, I guess, has already been tapped, so you wouldn't be able to. If we lost all our technology or know how, yeah, we would not be able to go the same path. Yeah, it'd be really but hard maybe to make. We'd reach a, different mm-hmm. steady state at a much smaller population and there'd be more birds and and it, there would definitely be more birds <laughs> <laughs> and more insects i mean sometimes i wonder 
what I always wonder what things look like before we chopped everything down and covered it in concrete or whatever. Like here where I live, they've, I presume it used to, we're on a, basically on a, uh, we're at the edge of an, at the edge of the ice sheet here. So we're yeah. all on till. I mean, we're on like a hundred meters of clay or something like that where I live. Uh-huh. And around us, again, there's a lot of these like rolling hills and these little glacial lakes and stuff like that. But I think this whole area must have used to be swamp essentially or bog or moor or whatever the right term is. And you know, it's all been drained. So much of Northern yeah. Europe has had all the water drained out of it so it can be turned into farmland. And I just yeah. cannot even imagine what this might. I mean, there used to probably were an awful lot more insects than there are now. Never mind yeah. all all the other stuff, and probably a lot more birds. Yeah, yeah. I think um, humans have fundamentally altered the landscape directly and indirectly across the whole, uh, certainly the terrestrial part. Um, you know, the rivers we've we've dammed or we've channelized um we've drained areas to to make swamp i mean to turn swamps into arable land yeah we've changed changed so much um the coastlines are completely changed i don't know what the number is but i'm sure like um you know easily 75% of the original estuaries in say you know, along the gulf of mexico are gone or transformed into something fundamentally different than they yeah. they used to be. We're like beavers, um, and and uh, except beavers create habitat <laughs> for other things. Or yeah, well, I mean, you could say we create habitat, whether it's necessarily good habitat. I don't know. We certainly create habitats for cockroaches and and rats. <laughs> oh my God, we have so many rats here. It's not even funny. So yeah, the landscape has has changed, and uh, so you've you know, probably you've probably yeah. actually also seen this a bit because you grew up in Riverside, California. I did, yes, and, and not I too far bet, from, from where you grew up, right? But you, you, I've you, actually never been to Riverside. I'm really embarrassed to say been that. To Rivers, nobody goes to Riverside. Well, maybe now they do, but back when I was growing up, nobody wanted to go to Riverside, or if they did, they were embarrassed to tell anybody. Um, Why is that? Well, I think all the cool areas were like the the coast, right? Riverside was supposed to be in the Inland Empire and one hour away from all the great things. Um, but 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 I enjoyed Riverside. Uh, uh, so I kind of uh, acquired a taste, I guess. Well, but this is how um, this is. I'm guessing this is how you got into birding, because you had I it wasn't had a concrete jungle. No. But, well, that's right. Um, that's right. It wasn't yet at the time and. And where we lived, it, well, actually, when I where when I grew up was on the outskirts of Riverside, and we had the orange grove, and so we were kind of in the countryside anyway, and so that's where I first was exposed. And then we moved into the city, but even then, there, you, within a mile, I could walk to the mountain. Now, the mountain was coastal sage scrub, and of the type that wasn't like where I think you. Were you in Santa Barbara or? No, I grew up in Torrance. Okay, okay, Torrance. And um, talk about not cool. Yeah, but the coastal sage there is a little healthier. And you get out to Riverside, it's like s- somewhere between nice coastal sage scrub and desert. So for the, again, the the uh, untrained eye, it just looks like a wasteland. You know, this is where you dump stuff. 
but uh, it's a special spot. Um, but yeah, I, I had access to that and I could see it. But yeah, you know, you asked, I think that's where you're going, whether I'd seen changes. Um, certainly now when I go back to that area, right, you have the urban sprawl from Los Angeles. People can't afford to live in Los Angeles. So they start to move out east and they live out there and then commute, you know, off. Oh, that's crazy. Long hours. And then, so that's the first changes we saw, just so much sprawl. And then now what's really happened, which is really sad, actually, is um, these massive warehouses, distribution yeah. warehouses for Amazon and other uh, uh, companies just covering that area. And the reason why I think they centered around that area is because like in Ontario, which is not too far from Riverside, you have that airport. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. Riverside, you had the, the Air Force Base that has now been kind of re uh redesigned to uh, do more civilian stuff and and really sending out like FedEx and Amazon planes and so all around there which used to be just open fields you could just see for miles and miles and miles unobstructed fields this is where birds like the mountain plover which are threatened now would come down from you know, north central United States and winter there. And now we don't see them at all. There's nowhere for them to go. It's, and, and some of these these uh, buildings, I, I don't know, they're just huge. Yeah. They go, I think they're about even a mile or two long themselves. Yeah. So no, it's, it's, all, it's all gone. Yeah, does it, it must fill you with rage. I, well, I, I, I don't, I don't know about rage, uh, more sadness. Um, uh, I mean, I'm part of the problem. We all are part of the problem. The the convenience that we take for granted of being able to get what we want just like that, you know, with a click uh, and of uh, order, and it comes because these distribution centers are everywhere, and we, you know, the carbon footprint of all of these is is huge, and yeah. the shipping, right? We're all part of the problem, and yet, how can you live? in this society and not be a part of the problem. Is there a way? I'm not even sure there's a way not to be a part of the problem. Well, I mean, yeah, right. I, I think one can take it in different ways. Um, I mean, the problem is just humans. If we just disappeared tomorrow, everything would be probably just fine. Uh, but obviously, that's not what we want to do. And uh, you know, we we want to still be able to live comfortably and i i don't think that is that's that's not a bad thing that you know we want to live and and be comfortable and have peace world peace and we want people to live with with uh you know not starving and with good health and uh, the fact is that that requires tapping the resources of our planet in in all different ways and so I guess that comes back to the word sustainability, which I think a lot of people don't, uh, well, maybe, maybe people have different definitions of sustainability. I, I see it as that it's inevitable we're going to have to live as a society. We're going to have to grow or, well, I'm not sure. I personally think we should grow, but, you know, most countries want to grow, uh, certainly grow their GDP, bring up the living standards of everyone. And if we want to do that, which is not necessarily a bad thing, we have to accept that we will impact 
the environment and the resources. So how do we do that? I suppose without what you know, how do we grow or stay strong without uh, really hurting the environment? I don't have an answer if, that, if that's what you're looking for. Because if I did, I had to solved it by now. But I do think about it almost every day, actually. Mm-hmm. How? Okay. Um, do you get anywhere with thoughts like that? Well, I, I can't say I, I I have solved anything. But I going back to how we started. You know, when I look at Houston. And look at where I live and where all the, all the, we already built everything, but, but then I see this place I call Harris Gully, this little natural spot. And I accept that, that we're going to have all these buildings. People have to live in houses. People have to work in buildings. And so far, I accept that. Uh, but I can see that we can preserve what habitat remains. We can get more people interested in it. We can improve these habitats so that they're like little oases or clusters within this built-up habitat. And uh, and so I think we can do something. Um, and if we had, you know, just looking around the city or any city, there's actually so much you could do to to um, turn it to bring us a little bit back towards having a more healthy ecology even though it might be side by side with a skyscraper, for example. I think we can do that. We have no choice, I think, but to do that. We have to try to do that. Otherwise, it is really lost. It's not sustainable. It's certainly not sustainable. So that's so I do see hope in that. And that's kind of what drives me right now. You know, I have my day job, but this is what I like. It's really my uh I, I never really had a mission in life. It was just to do research and write papers, but but now this is really my, I really feel this is my mission, and to spread all this sort of, as a, like a, what is, what is it, evangelizing, <laughs> I suppose, of, of taking care of what you have left. Okay, um, and so that means yeah. preserving, yeah, how would you say it, not green spaces, because you're not talking about parks where they're heavily managed, you're actually just talking about Having areas that you leave alone, or what? What is it that you yeah, mean? Uh, well, uh, one is leave leave alone. If if you can just leave it alone, that's that's great because less management. But the parks can be modified so that instead of heavily managed like manicured lawns, they you have a little bit more structure in there, and you serve different purposes. You know, there are people that want to go biking, have picnics and stuff, you, you have to look at all the people who will use the park. But you can also, the other things that use the park are the animals and the plants. So they should, they should be part of it too. Um, and, then, and then in the built spaces where there, say, aren't any parks, you, you can modify those areas to go back to a little bit of nature and still make it attractive. Um, you know, uh, along, um, uh, say, uh, a whole bunch, you know, just in people's houses, right? Um, they can grow certain types of plants that are, are more conducive to to insects and, and birds. They don't have to have lawns. Or if you go to um, our industrialized agriculture, which I accept, we have to do that. There's no way we're going to feed 8 billion people by 
just having artisanal organic farms in each person's backyard. It's not going to work. It has to be mechanized, it has to be industrial, it has to be at this great scale. But we know the, the impacts, we know the costs of those, those things, the destruction to the, the soils, the, the, the pesticide use, the, the fertilizer use. But what you could do is you could leave a small strip of your big industrial farm as a more natural grassland. Right, and in there, um, you'll preserve some of the original pollinators, uh, and the pollinators aren't just your regular European honeybee; they they, they also include um, uh, all different types of wasps and flies. And uh, but those for those to survive, you you need the right soil. You can't keep tilling it. You can't compact it. Uh, and once you have those, you can uh, things may come back. Maybe you don't have to use as much pesticides. Use the natural corridor there or to be your um, keep your own farm in check uh, you know there's this this wasp it's called uh, i think it's called the such a coin it's called the five banded stink bug killer uh, wasp wow okay that's quite it, a name yeah i mean that, that's an awesome name and what it does is it goes after stink bugs and stink bugs are real pests and usually we to nuke your farms with pesticides to kill the stink bug, these stink bugs. But this wasp surgically goes after the stink bugs. And, and if you can keep the wasp, it's great. And what they do is they have a little burrow and they have their babies in there as eggs. And then they go get a stink bug and they catch it and they paralyze it. They don't kill it. They just paralyze it, make it into a zombie and then dump it into the, uh, the, the burrow and then they seal it, and then they take off. And so it's better than refrigeration. The, this thing's still alive. And when the eggs hatch, <laughs> they come up, and they're excited, and they eat, they eat the stink bug. And, and so they're so efficient at that that they will keep these pests at bay. But the key to have these is you have to have flowers that these guys can pollinate. You have mm. to, when they're adults, to feed on me or that. And you have to have the right soil for them to dig in. If you compact it all the time with tractors, they can't dig into the soil. Mm-hmm. So um, just really little things like that could make a difference. We've seen it in our own little patch here. We allowed some of the soil to kind of come back. And before you know it, we had the five-banded stink bug, killer wasp come back. And uh, and, and nature has its way of, of maintaining different steady states where not you know nothing really gets out of control because as we started off things die and it's part of the natural cycle or the uh, it has to happen that things die uh, and things are born um, so i think there's a lot to be done with what we've got and still allow us to live and you know we can still fly to mars and <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you always have to keep exploring. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Okay, so everyone should go out and and fight to uh, for for to preserve what little natural spaces they have left in in their cities and towns, and that's a great thing yeah. that they can do to, to for sustainability and to to share the world with all the rest of the life that lives here. And that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thank you for listening to Solar Funk Presents, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. 
The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the neutral Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence or share the podcast with friends, family, and people you know who might be interested in our guests and what we have to say. We'd also love it if you could write us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice because every review bumps us higher in the algorithm's priority so we can reach more listeners. Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.